Goodness, pardon me. Good evening. <laughs> How's everybody doing tonight? Some fine. I heard an old me. Who did that? No. Won't you stand with me tonight as we open up? Glad that you're tuned in with us tonight. Glad to, uh, for you to be able to join us in our midweek service. We're going to go ahead and open up in prayer. How many have a need tonight? You'll just signify by lifting your hand. If you're online, if you'll comment, we want to pray with you as well. Uh, I would ask that let's pray. Uh, let, let's pray for our nation. You know, I, you know, with 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 the leaked um, potential overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, I've just, you know, I've just been really bothered that you'd have so many people that would get out and protest the right to kill a baby, but yet we have, you know, 38 million people that would go to bed hungry tonight, and then I don't know how many uh, children will be human trafficked or sex trafficked, and you don't see them saying too too much about that. It really just bothers me. And puzzles me. So let's just pray that uh, I've heard people say that uh, that once that was overturned, that the, that stain uh, would enable God to start working again uh, in this nation. I don't know. Uh, I don't know that God has been restricted from working, but I, I believe it is the right step in the right direction to remove the stain of, of shedding innocent blood. Um, you know, it has nothing. Anyway, I don't want to go there. <laughs> But uh, let's pray. Uh, we we want to pray that the eyes of their understanding would be opened, and that uh, that his his truth would prevail. Father, tonight we are so grateful to be able to tune in tonight and or to come together tonight and and to study your word, Lord. I thank you again for the freedoms that we enjoy, but the freedoms that must be uh, guarded and protected uh, and acted upon through the means that we have, uh, Lord, as a free society. I just pray tonight that, uh, again, we thank you for that privilege that allows us to assemble, that allows us to study your word. We can sing, we can witness, we can share our faith, we can do all of these things. And for that, we are so grateful uh, because it is a unique privilege among the, the nations of the earth. And I just pray tonight as we have gathered here freely to study your word and those that have tuned in tonight, Lord, we do so, uh, Lord, because we are hungry for more of you. And I pray as we open up tonight all the needs that have been uh, expressed here tonight with the uplifting of the hand and those that are online tonight. God, I thank you that you are mindful of us and that you uh, hear us when we pray. And so, Father, we lift these things up to you tonight. Lord, those that need healing, uh, Lord, those that need comforting, those that need strength, uh, Lord, those that need resources and guidance and wisdom. Lord, all of these things, you said we could come and we could find that grace and mercy in our time of need. And, Lord, we pray for a very pivotal time in our nation, Lord, with this uh, recent uh, leaking, Lord, if it holds to be true. Uh, Lord, the undoing of, of, of something that happened so long ago, Lord, we pray that, uh, Lord, you would open the eyes, those who have been darkened uh, by the prince of this world, uh, Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our under, their understanding that they might see your truth and respond to it, Lord. I pray that you would, uh, Lord, just let wisdom uh, prevail in our nation, and Lord, we need you. We need revival, uh, Lord, in a very desperate way, and Lord, I pray that let us be the uh, Lord, let us be a, a spark. Let us be a part right here in our own community where we can spark a, a, a sovereign move of God in these last days. Now, I ask you to be with every ministry on the campus. Uh, Lord, open our hearts and let us hear what the Spirit says to us. We commit this time to you right now in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen, amen. God bless you. you may be seated tonight. I uh, want you to go ahead and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to get right into our study uh, just in way of announcements, don't forget, guys, if you've signed up to go fishing, uh, 9 o'clock, uh, I wish. <laughs> uh, 4 o'clock, we're leaving, 4 o'clock, Saturday, Saturday. I'm just all messed up tonight. Uh, what day? Friday. Friday. <laughs> I need to go check in and recharge or something. Um, so, no, Friday at, uh, at 4 a.m., we're going to be leaving here driving over, and then we'll, we'll be back. So just make sure you have your license, uh, something to maybe, I'm going to take a cooler, but have something in your car, something to take your fish home, and, uh, and, and we're looking forward to a good day. Uh, also, don't forget, uh, Sunday's Mother's Day, and we're going to continue on with our Family Matters series. Uh, next Thursday is our, our food distribution day, and uh, again, we just kind of lining things up and, and uh, looking forward to a, to a great time. Uh, one, one, well, I'll, I'll, I'll announce this later. Let's get right into our word. We're going to continue on with our series, Strength and Weakness, and tonight we're going to be talking about success. How many has ever wanted or dreamed of success? Uh, regardless of what, 
what that in, what that was. Maybe as a, as a as a teacher, you wanted to be successful in educating students. Maybe as a business person, you wanted to be successful in earning uh, a, a, an income or doing a good service, whatever it was. You know, most people want to be successful. And so Paul, in, in our teaching tonight, Paul addresses uh, the matrix whereby God measures what's successful. Uh, because, listen, he, he grades a lot different than we do. And, and so we're going to look at that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning 1, we'll just read the first three verses. Paul writes, he says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles or letters of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. May the Lord add his blessing to his word tonight. As we get right into this series, remember Paul, just kind of a, 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 a simple review, Paul is writing again to the church of, of Corinth. He's writing, uh, and, and part of what he's doing, remember last week, he was encouraging the church to the, the man that they discipline, spiritual, they, they exercise spiritual discipline, uh, he said, now you need to forgive him and welcome him back in. Uh, and, and again, some, ref, some think that that might have been the young man in, in 1 Corinthians that uh, was having an affair with his stepmother. Uh, some believe that it may have been another guy that was, remember Paul's writing in this, this particular letter, this was about, uh, there was a dissension, there was a division that, that uh, crept into the Corinthian church because there were people that were questioning Paul's authenticity. They were challenging his apostleship and his right to do what he was doing. And so it could have been that guy, but whatever. So Paul was saying, hey, look, you put him out, you've disciplined him. He's obviously, through inference, we see that he's probably repented, so now welcoming back in. And so we talked about forgiveness as being a very vital part. Uh, listen, if you've lived longer than 10 minutes, you know that you're going to have to forgive somewhere down the line because somebody's going to wrong you, somebody's going to do, say something, do something, not do something, and you're going you're gonna to have to forgive or you're going to be trapped for the rest of your life. Uh, so as we continue with that vein, so we're going to talk about now, what, uh, again, Paul is in, in 2 Corinthians, he talks more about himself than in any, any other letters because he's defending himself. How many has ever been accused of something and you've defended yourself? That's kind of what Paul's doing right here. So several years ago, some of you remember this, several years ago I taught a series on the 12 disciples uh, based on uh, a book, 12 Ordinary Men, and we looked at the disciples. And one of the things that I pointed out, and I mentioned that if you and I were to look at these men individually, we would probably not hire most of them if we owned a business. I mean, if you, were look, if you look at what they brought to the table, the majority of these men that Jesus picked you got to understand, Jesus picked them. Uh, we would not give a second thought if we saw their resume come across our desk. Jesus saw something in them because he looked past the outer facade and he saw their inner character. Remember, the, the evidence of Scripture is that God, man looks on the outward appearance, but God does what? He looks on the heart. So even though we would look at them and on a, on a cursory level, we might dismiss them as someone that we would want to work in our company or be a part of our team or whatever, Jesus saw something in them, and he chose them. Uh, and, and, and the reason I say that is because Paul probably could have fit in that group as well. <laughs> you know, Paul probably could have fit in that group as well. Now, I understand he had a great heritage. I mean, again, he talked about where he came from, uh, his family background. So he had a great heritage. He had a stellar education. But Paul was an antagonist. Start out Saul, but Paul, Saul and Paul, uh, Paul was an antagonist. He had a record, right? He had a record. He spent time in jail. Would you want him on your team? Churches split over him. He was not very tactful. In fact, he was a guy that typically would say what he meant, you know, and he didn't whitewash anything. He didn't kind of water it down. I kind of, I don't like that anyway. I'd rather somebody tell me what you want to tell me. You know, because I, sometimes I can, I can read behind the bushes. Most of the time I can't. So don't, don't try to drop these hints. Just tell me what you want to tell me, 
and, and, and be done with it. And, and, and so that's kind of Paul. So he wasn't tactful. You know, he just kind of told him which side the bread, the bread was buttered on. And he, again, he just didn't mince words. Um, he spent most of his ministry surrounded in controversy. That's him. So Paul probably would have fit in with that group of people looking at leadership. We probably wouldn't want him to be on our team. You know, a person like that probably wouldn't get much of an opportunity in today's church world. You see, the modern church world today, we like our superstars. That's, we crave them. We crave superstars. And, and, and the modern church, we want those. We want, we want superstars. And it's unfortunate because many of our superstars that we have today are shallow when it comes to the demands of a pastor. They're shallow, but hey, they look good in jeans and a fashionable shirt. That's what we're after. I don't know if you saw the episode. There was a show on, uh, I've been reading stories about it in some of the magazines about uh, there's been a couple pastors, well, uh, well-known pastors that have just been really doing some boneheaded things. And, and, and they got called out by the, the public. And, again, that brings a reproach. You know, but the church craves that. You know, if you have that, that charisma about you, if you, uh, if you can uh, put things in cadence that gets people all riled up, I mean, they, that's, that's kind of what we crave. These are the ones. That, but think about it, okay? So we crave superstars. So we look for people that can draw a crowd and that can woo people with wonderful stories, and they can tell all these stories and what they've done and who they've met and all this stuff. Well, so these are the ones that are invited to speak at the various conferences and seminars because they are successful in the eyes of most people. I one time preached at a church in Hurley. Anybody ever heard of Hurley, Mississippi? Yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, it's one of those towns that you're driving. So it's, it's just on the other side of the line from Mobile uh, County. So you're, you're coming out, you're headed west uh, on, on, we call it Airport Boulevard. You're coming out of, you're coming out of uh, Mobile and, and you go right into Mississippi, and you're right in Hurley. And there's not a whole lot in Hurley. And, and I remember my mom, my mom was still living, so it had been in the, probably the early 90s. I'd been, I was pastoring here, so it had been somewhere right, maybe 94, 95 before mom passed away. Uh, and I, did, I was invited to preach at this church, uh, Magnolia Springs Assembly of God in, in Hurley, Mississippi. Now, and how many of you have ever, if you ever uh, think about going to visit a town, you create a mental picture of what you think it's going to look like? Anybody ever do that? I remember the first time I went to South America, I was, I was shocked when I landed in Santiago, Chile, South America. I'm thinking of hat, uh, huts and grass skirts and things like that because that's the image that I had in my mind, and they have high-rises just like Dallas and Fort Worth, and so I was just amazed at how modern the city was. And so in my mind, I had this picture of what Hurley, Mississippi, and the church in Hurley was going to be, uh, was going to be like. The pastor of that church was a man uh, by the name of Norman Busby. Now, he's passed on. He's gone to be with the Lord. But Brother Busby was my pastor when I was born. He's the one that dedicated me when I was a baby. Now, I don't remember him very much because uh, I was a baby. But uh, <laughs> he had a good relationship, and he was very close to my, to my family, my parents, in, in particular, and uh, when he found out when he found out I was in ministry, uh, and how cool is that? You know, you dedicate a baby, and then years later you find out he's in ministry. So he asked my dad if if I would preach for him, and my dad said, "Hey, brother Busby, would like for you to come and preach. You know, this history with the family." And, and so we were going to be there Thanksgiving weekend, whatever year that was ninety, probably ninety four. And so I said, "Okay, I'll be glad. I'll be more than happy to preach there." So in my mind, I'm thinking. I'm thinking a podunk, pardon me, but a podunk town, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing like four, four sticks in the hut thing. Yeah, not really, but I mean, just, you know, small. I'm just thinking small. So we, we get up on a Sunday, that Sunday evening, we're going over. It's a Sunday night service on Thanksgiving weekend. So we drive in, and we turn off of the main road on a dirt road. See, the stereotyping is in my brain. Turn off on a dirt road. We drive about a half a mile, and we come around a corner, and there's this marvelous, huge church building. I thought, wow, right here in the middle of the woods. And so I go in there, and, and I go up to Brother Busby, and he asked me to come into his office. And, 
And he just starts telling me stories of when I was a little boy. You remember I shared how I almost died? He was the pastor when I almost died in the Sunday morning service when I quit breathing. Uh, so he was the pastor. So we started talking. He started telling me these stories and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and then he said this. He said, I, I'm excited to have you preach here tonight. He said, but I, I need to apologize to you because this is a holiday weekend. I didn't think much about it being a holiday weekend. He said, we probably won't have a lot of people here tonight with it you know, being a holiday weekend. I said, oh, that's okay. you got to remember, back then we were probably not even 100 people. And so I said, but that's okay. So I go out there that Sunday night. There was 500 people in church. <laughs> and I was like, I can handle this. It's okay. And, 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 he, and here's what he told me. He said, you know, he said, all these officials didn't really have much time for me when I was pastoring 100 people. He said, they, you know, they wouldn't call me. They wouldn't ask my opinion or my advice about anything. And, 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 and he said, but as we started growing, you know, when we passed 250 and 300 and 400 and 500, and when we got up to 700 to 1,000 people, he saw all of a sudden my phone started ringing. And he said, all these people wanted me to come talk to them and tell them how we did it and how we built this wonderful church. And he said, he said I always told them, said, you know what? You didn't have time for me when I had 100 people. I don't have time for you now that we're running 1,000 people. And I always remember that. I always remembered that because the matrix that we use to define success is very flawed. It's very flawed. I mean, how do we measure success, particularly in ministry? You know, that's the question that Paul faces in, 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 in 2 Corinthians. He had to, he had to justify himself because a, a group of critics that were basically taking over the church. They were taking over the church. They were feel, feeling, filling people's minds with these accusations against Paul's character and his conduct. You know, things like, well, you can't trust him. Look how fickle he is. He say he's coming, but he's not coming. You know, again, I still find that very stupid. You know, I'm sorry, but I just, I feel that, I find that he, he said he was coming, but he didn't come, so you can't trust him. Um, you know, he, he, how do you know he's not fake? So there was a dissension there. So Paul, Paul, uh, part of Paul's answer comes in our text tonight where he declares, and here's what he's saying in this passage, that the real measure of his ministry is the lives that have been changed by the Holy Spirit. That's the measure right there. So you and I grade differently, and our world grades differently, but Paul says, hey, you want to talk about successful ministry. The ministry that I have is successful because of the lives that have been changed by the Holy Spirit. So Paul understood that it wasn't about programs, it wasn't about buildings, it wasn't about budgets or attendance. It was about lives that were being changed by the Holy Spirit. So it gives us some insight. Let's talk about that a minute. First of all, let's look at the inadequate measures of success. Again, these are some of the matrix that we would use today. Look, notice verse 1. He said, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need like some people? And this is a, I love this translation. It says, are we like some people need letters of recommendation to you or from you? Basically, Paul, Paul was saying, you know what? I don't need to boast. I, I don't need a letter of reference to prove the validity of the ministry that God gave me. Boy, that's a whole lot different than the way we do it today. I mean, think about it. Sometimes, you know, how do we measure success? Sometimes we measure success by the degrees hanging on the wall, right? And, and I'm not knocking education, please. I'm not knocking those things. So we, we go to college for four years. We get a BA or a BS, and then we go, some, some go on to graduate school and get an MA or an MS, and, and there's some that even go further than that, and they'll, they'll get a, an MD or a JD or a, uh, a, an MDM or DMM or whatever. They just keep going. They just keep going. And, and you know what? That matters in our world today. Somebody had walked into my office one time and said, and said well, where are your diplomas? I said, they're not hanging on my wall. I don't have them hanging on my wall. Not important to me. Not important to me. I mean, and again, I'm not knocking. I'm not against it. I have a master's degree, I'm, but I don't have it hanging in my office. It's probably stuck on a bookshelf somewhere in my house. That not, but that's what the world looks at. Sometimes you think about ordination, ordina ordaining people. You know, the people called into ministry, and it's important. Again, I, I understand the process, and I think it's important because obviously you want someone that's of, of, of repute to be to be pastors. You don't want anybody to just think they can do it and, and and have all kinds of skeletons and stuff. So there's a process. You know, there's a process. You know, they uh, they're well respected people within the the denomination or whatever. They examine you carefully. They regard they uh, they look at your testimony, your background, your education, your doctrine, your spiritual life. They want to hear about your call to ministry. 
And, and in some denominations, you, cannot even, you, you can't even be thought of to be a pastor unless you have an ordination. You just can't do it. You know, without that ordination paper on the wall, you're not going to be qualified to, to stand behind the pulpit. It's a mark of accomplishment, a sign that someone somewhere has checked you out and you passed the muster. So sometimes that's how we look at success. Oftentimes we, I mean, think about pastors. Some, uh, oftentimes pastors are measured by the size of their church because that's important in our world. I mean, we want to know. I mean, probably nothing matters in today's Christian world more than that right there. How big is your church? How big is your church? Go, go to any, any ministerial gathering, and, and after the initial greeting, somebody's going to bring it up, and they're going to say, well, how many are you running now? How many are you running now? And, and, and it happens all the time because that matters. Because you know why? Because 50 is better than 25. 100 is better than 50. 500 is better than 250, right? 1,000 is better than 500. I mean, there's some churches get up to 2,000. They're mega churches, and we have several. Actually, we have quite a few of those in the country today, and actually there are some churches that are well beyond that. In fact, there, there's a couple churches that run 30 and 40,000 people in the United States of America, and that matters because the rest of us can't hold water to them because we measure success that way. Again, there's a lot of other ways of looking at how we measure success. Again, these are inadequate measures of success. Like, for instance, who do you know? I, I, don't, I don't, name droppers bother me. You know, one of the things that over the last years I was meeting people all across the county, you know, I always found it interesting how, how people wanted to drop names and about who they hung out with and who they talked to or who they knew or who they had on their phone. And I'm like, and? And, I mean, is that supposed to impress me? Again, I, I, I did, there, there's, a lot, there's a lot of things that impress me, but that's not one of them. But yet we measure that. I mean, uh, who do you know? How well connected are you? Do you know a senator? How many millionaires attend your church? Have you met the president? Will Jerry Jones return your phone call when you call him? <laughs> on and on it goes. That, that's, how we, that's how we measure success because we live in a celebrity culture. It matters to us who we know. I, I remember one year I was coming back from, uh, I believe I was in, had gone on a scouting trip to Curacao. And the route to Curacao is from DFW to Miami, Miami into Curacao, which is one of the ABC islands there outside of uh, Venezuela. So I was coming back, and I remember I had a layover in Miami, and as I was getting ready to board a plane, I looked over and over by sitting, seated out in the, in the common area. I saw a bunch of people gather around an individual, and I thought, okay, well, who's that? And I'm standing there, and all of a sudden I look, you know, as I'm looking, I, I, I see a break in the crowd, and it's Pud Rodriguez, the great catcher from the Texas Rangers. And people were wanting pictures with him, and and, and getting his autograph, and, you know, he's just sitting there waiting on to get on the plane. So we get on the plane, and we happen to sit, he and I sit next to each other. And so I'm sitting next to Pudge, and, and as people were coming in, they see him, and they're, they're leaning down to take pictures. And as everybody got seated, I looked at him, and I said, does that ever get old? He said, yeah, sometimes it does. He said, sometimes it really, it really does. And I said, you know what? I said, I'm not going to ask you for your autograph. I said, I know that just has to get old at some time. I said, but I am going to take a picture with you. <laughs> but it is important. Again, if you, it gives you clout. I mean, who you know, these things matter because they become your letters of recommendation that Paul said, hey, I'm not going to do that. I don't need a letter of recommendation. Paul said, that's, I'm not looking for the approval or recognition of others and the applause of the others because that's not the true measure of success because God views it differently. So what, is, what does matter? If that's inadequate measures, so what does matter? Notice how Paul moves into, in verses 2 and 3, now he shifts to what really is important when you start talking about success in ministry. He said, you yourselves are our letter. You are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. So basically, Paul is saying, look, as far as I'm concerned, the real proof of ministry is the changed lives of those who listen to the gospel. That's the proof of my ministry. He preached the gospel. 
the Holy Spirit applied it to the listeners, and when they believed in Jesus Christ, they gave their life to him, and they were completely changed. That was his credentials. You know, you got to understand that that's a pretty phenomenal thing to happen because Corinth, remember, Corinth was a pagan city. It had been overrun with idol worship. It had been overrun with gross sexual immorality, and it was a seaport town, so it was, it was prone to that. It was prone to that. It had a reputation for sensuality that was, that was second to none. In fact, they coined a word to Corinthianize is the word they used. That meant to get to the bottom of, the, of, of, of just the debased nature of mankind. To Corinthianize just simply meant you were the worst of the worst, that you were so hedonistic that it was all about what turned you on and made you happy and satisfied your, your fleshly cravings. That's, that's what it was. That was first century Corinth. And yet Paul said, my witness to you and my testimony is the changed lives of people that heard the gospel. It meant to live, uh, again, the Corinthian eyes simply means to live on the level of brute sexual appetites. Corinth was a place where you could, where truly anything went. You know, you dreamed it, you could do it. That's how it was. So when the gospel entered when Paul proclaimed the gospel with the, pro- the promise of a life transformation through the power of Jesus Christ, sinners were converted, and some of them, many of them, were radically changed by the gospel. Paul had written about this in the first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, Do you not know that the, w- that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the male prostitutes, nor the homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That was his message. That's what he went to preach in this pagan city. He's like, look, none of this is going to make it. Boy, wouldn't he have a filled day in our world today? He said, none of this is going to make it. You, not, you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you're like this. And I love what he goes on. I mean, that's a hard message for our modern sensitivities, but Paul didn't stop there. Because if you go on in that same chapter, he's, in verse 11 of that chapter, he says, and that's what some of you were. That's what some of you were. But, I like that. Don't you like those buts? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of of our God. What is Paul saying? You want to talk about successful ministry? Let me tell you, there were idolaters and homosexuals and and all kinds of deviant lifestyles. That's what you used to be. But when you heard the message of Jesus Christ, you were changed. You were transformed. You were, again, that's what he's talking about. That's my recommendation. The most important part of that in verse 11 is when he says, and that's what some of you were. That's what you were. See, the effective power of all that we believe is summed up in those words. That's what you were. Every one of us here has a story of that's what we were. But the gospel did the same thing. What it did for the Corinthians so long ago, it did the same thing for us. That's what we were. But we've been washed. We've been, again, we've been changed, transformed by the Word of God. See, Corinthians, excuse me, Christianity is supremely a religion of conversion. See, there's a lot of religions in our world today that would allow you to stay the same as you are. Christianity doesn't have any room for that. Paul said, if any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. New creation. He doesn't leave room for us to stay the same. And I've, you've heard me say this for years and years and years. If you're, the same as, if you're the same as you were before you accepted Christ, you got a raw deal and not the genuine thing. Because if we're in Christ, we're new. We're not improved upon the old. We're brand new people. He transforms us and changes us. So Paul said, that's what you were. Christianity, again, is supremely a religion of conversion. Everything that we say, everything, is we, everything that we believe is built on that fundamental principle that you don't have to stay the way you are. Isn't that good? You don't have to stay the way you are. That through Christ, I can change. Through Christ, I can be better. Through Christ, I can be born again. I can be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I can take off the dirty rags of my, and, and the filth of my own righteousness, and I can be clothed with the righteousness of, of him who created all things that are made. That's what separates Christianity from all other religions in the world. You don't have to stay the way you are. We can be radically changed by God. See, the miracle of conversion happens when the life of God intersects with our human personality. We're changed. 
when the Spirit of God comes in. And uh, that's why Paul told the Ephesians that we are, we're walking dead people. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but the Spirit of God quickens us. It makes us alive. We come alive. We're born again. Once God enters the picture, how many of you can testify our life's never the same? When Jesus comes in, our life will never be the same. And until then, listen, we may be religious. We may be a good person. We may obey the rules of the church, but we've not been converted. Listen, We've been called to make converts or disciples. Uh, not, actually, we've been called to make disciples, not just decisions. Right? I mean, you talk about a change. Think about this. So Paul says, hey, here's my resume. You're telling me I'm going to need a letter of recommendation and, or to brag about, but, but I'm just telling you, you're my, you're my example. You're my recommendation. You're the letter that's been written upon, the, stone, the tablet of your heart, by the ministry that God's given to us, and you want to talk about change, okay? I mean, can you imagine the impact uh, in Corinth when an idol worshiper came to Christ? Okay, just think about that for a minute. And his buddies at the temple of Aphrodite, uh, you know, the goddess of love, are sitting there in their worship time and their idolatry and wondering, well, where's Jim? I hadn't seen Jim in a little while. wonder what happened to Jim. Jim used to be here all the time. He's not coming anymore. I wonder what happened to him. Why, why doesn't he offer sacrifices? Why doesn't he take, uh, uh, partake of the sexual escapades with the priestesses that are attached to the temple? What happened to Jim? Or suppose a woman was one of those, prof, uh, those priestess, the prostitutes. What would her friends say when she suddenly stopped plying her trade? Well, you know, Susie used to be one of us. She used to come in, and as a a religious ritual, she would offer her, her services to the men that would come in here. Whatever happened to her? She used to be here all the time, but she's not coming anymore. Her answer would blow their minds. Paul said, such were some of you. Such were some of you. That's what you used to be. But because we came and we preached the message of Christ, you're different. He changed you. Or think about the man. Here's a man in Corinth who has lived the homosexual lifestyle, but no more. He's changed. He's been washed. He's been cleansed. He's been sanctified. He's been given a new heart, a new life, and a new direction. Oh, yeah, the temptation remains, right? But the direction of his life has changed. I had a discussion with somebody one time, and they said, do you really believe that, that you know, the homosexuality thing? I said, look, I'm a heterosexual. I said, there's a, there's a temptation as a, as a heterosexual for women. There, there's a temptation. You never outgrow that. I said, but when you accept Christ, he gives you the power to change, to, to, to alter, the, to, to, to change courses, if you will. Instead of giving in to the base nature, you now serve him. You know, and I said the same way. You know, so, so imagine a man that, that lived that lifestyle. You know, he's, he's had, he has a new direction and his life has changed forever. Can you imagine what his friends would say when he declared, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's what Paul's saying. That's the power of the gospel. That's why we still do what we do Sunday mornings and, you know, we just can't define it on Sunday morning because we're busy, a busy church all the time. That's why we do what we do because you and I believe that the gospel still has the ability to change people. That's what they were, but that's not who they are through Christ. They are sanctified. They're washed. They're cleansed. They're given a new life and a new direction. See, conversion is the miracle whereby God changes the tenses of your life. You ever thought about that? I read that today, and I thought, that's powerful. Conversion, I think it's right here. Conversion is the miracle whereby God changes the tenses of your life. And what I mean by that is that's what you were, this is what you are. God changes through conversion the tenses of my life. See, Christians believe that Jesus can do it. And we believe that only Jesus has that life-changing power to truly transform our life from the inside out. That's what compels us to preach and to teach and to witness and to love and to serve and to give and to care, do all these things because we still believe that no matter how hardened a person's heart is, that he's still able to reach in, take out a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. We still believe that. We still believe that. That's what Paul said. That's my recommendation. That's my recommendation. See, that's what happened to the first century believers in that seaport town of Corinth. How did this radical change take place among those who heard the message? 
Well, it changed them. It changed them from idol worshipers and pagans to what they were now. And, and, and here's what happened to them. They, number one, they were visibly different. Paul says in verse 2, he said, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read of everybody. That's where Paul said we're living epistles, read of all people. Listen, when it comes to conversion, there are two things that happen. There's there's an internal witness and an external witness. That internal witness, you know that you know that you know that God got a hold of you and something happened. How many can remember when you were born again? How many can remember when you had that salvation experience? For some people, it was such a dramatic moment that they'll never forget it. You know, with, with me, like myself, growing up in church, I got saved every time an evangelist came to town which is about every other Sunday night. <laughs> you know, I'd go to the altar and I'd read and cry, you know, as a young man growing up, young boy growing up. So I can't really pinpoint an exact day, but I do remember, as you've heard my testimony many times, when my parents' faith became my faith in January of 1985 in a barracks in San Antonio, Texas at Lackland Air Force Base. I do remember that. I do remember what happened. See, they were visibly different. See, it's a wonderful thing when your conversion is so real that no one can deny the change that's in you. See, the ex- internal is that I know something changed. See, my wonder changes, my goals change, my values change. But see, that's not the only evidence. Then there's the external witness. What that means is you're visibly different. There are people that look at you and they go, you know, there's something different about you. That's the external witness. That's the visible difference. Not only that, they, they, be, they were visibly different. They became followers of Christ. Look at verse 3. He said, you show that you are a letter from Christ. See, their lives are now a testimony for other people to see, written in their hearts, plain and clear for everyone to see. They are followers of Jesus. I, I love what the Scriptures say about Jesus. When people noticed, the disciples, when, Jesus, or when people saw them, they said, uh, they, the Bible says they took note that they had been with Jesus. And, and I don't think it was because they wore a shirt that says, I'm with him. <laughs> I think it's because they carried themselves in such a manner that it differentiated them from the rest of the world. See, wouldn't it be wonderful if we still live with that same conviction today? That our t- Again, not that we're better than anybody else because we're not. We're sinners saved by grace just like everybody else. But we should be different. I, I think there ought to be a difference between someone who calls himself a believer and someone who does not. The modern church's problem is we've allowed the sin of the world to become the sin of the church, and we don't do anything about it. Therefore, the church has lost its savor, the light has been dimmed, and we're not reaching people. And that's got to stop. They were followers of Christ. Another thing that it showed, they, they were idol worshipers now they're, and, and pagans, but now they've been supernaturally changed. Verse number 3, he said, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. It was a spiritual thing. You know, they they didn't just walk down an aisle and make an intellectual decision to be a Christian. It was a spiritual thing that took place on the inside of them. They were different. They they were not changed by joining a church. You you hear me say it all the time when I ask people to come to the altar to do that, you know, public declaration. You're not joining a church. This has nothing to do with your salvation. They, They weren't changed because they joined a church. They weren't changed because they walked an aisle or signed a card. Those things have no power to change an individual at all. Only the Holy Spirit working on the inside has the power to change us. Another thing about them, they were internally transformed. He said, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Again, these rules, the Ten Commandments, the rules are written on stone. Only the gospel can change us from the inside out. See, that's why I say it all the time. Our job is to go out and fish. Some guys, we're going to go, get, we're going to go have practice on Friday. <laughs> but our job is to fish. And then his job, the Spirit's job, is to clean them up from the inside out. Because we can't do it. We can't do it. Only the gospel can change us from the inside out. Christians are living epistles, letters that anyone can read. Jesus is the writer, the Holy Spirit is the ink, and we're the letter. So what is the real mark of successful ministry? It absolutely has to be the lives changed 
by the preaching of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's it. That's why the proof of ministry can never, ever be simply counting nickels and noses or degrees or books written or the size of your Sunday morning attendance or how big your budget is or who came to speak or who, who serves on the board or how long you've been in ministry. None of that really amounts to much of anything. You know, one of the, I think I've shared this with you before, but one of the rituals, and I, I, don't, I don't like to use the word ritual, one of the things I do every, every year, I have been now for the last several years, is, you know, I've been here a long time. You know, July will be 29 years uh, here, and, and that, that's a long time. That's, that's a, in today's world, that's kind of a rare thing. And every year, you know, I, I go through the same thing. I'm like, God, I don't ever, as much as I love this place and can't imagine not doing this here, Every year I ask the Lord the same thing. Lord, I don't want to be a hindrance to what you want to do. I don't want to stay outstay what I'm here for. I don't. And every year I say, Lord, help me to see. Help me to discern. And you know what I look for? I don't look for, even though we talk about growth, and, and, and listen, I think every Christian ought to, be, ought to be on board with growing the church numerically, you know, giving us a workforce to impact our community. But that's not really what I look for. You know what I look for? I look for, did we make an impact? Did we touch hurting people? Are the services still producing? Are we seeing people change, visibly change? Are we seeing people respond to the call of God? Are we seeing God, uh, people sensitive to the Holy Spirit? These are things that are important to me because they're the metrics that I want to measure what we're doing here. Because you can have 5,000 people, but if you don't have, you know, you may have 5,000 people, but you may not have a, a, a solid church. You know, so I don't, I don't, I don't want to be caught up in those numbers because that's not the metric I want to use. Michael Andrus wrote this. He said, Peter, excuse me, Paul, and, I, and, 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 and this, have you ever noticed that in the epistles, Paul never gives the attendance statistics from any of the churches? You ever notice that? Paul never, Paul never talks about the numbers of people in the church. He never tells how many baptisms were performed in a given year. He never reports on the numbers of new programs that he started, and he doesn't even tell how much giving has come into the church budget. Doesn't, t- doesn't say any of that stuff. He's interested in lives that are being changed by the gospel. You know, we count those things, and, you know, in our minds we say, well, you know, if we, if we got those, then we've got to have a successful ministry. Paul said, you know what, I'm not playing that game. That's not where it's at because there are churches that have tremendous budgets but they do very little for the kingdom. And that's a sad reality. Even in, within our own, we have 600 and, I don't know, 60 churches uh, in, in the North Texas area, and there's about probably 350 that never give a dime to missions. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? So there has to be a different uh, matrix. See, the only thing that matter, the only thing that matters is lives that are being changed. The rest of it is just details. We don't need ministerial window dressing. Just the facts, man. <laughs> just the facts. So the source of our success, as I wrap this up, looking at this passage, the matrix that God uses to measure success, again, is expressed in lives that are changed. Again, I, I, evidently from reading Scripture, he's not impressed by the size of our budget. He's not impressed by stained glass in the sanctuary. He's, listen, the one who hung the stars in space really doesn't care how many books we've written or how much money we make or if our name's ever published or put in lights. He doesn't really care. He's arranged things so that we get the honor and the privilege of serving him. That's it. See, when I, when I had that epiphany years ago, it changed ministry. See, no longer was I seeking the applause of men when I understood that it was a privilege that God, and a responsibility, that God laid upon me to be a pastor, but then more importantly, each of us as believers, we've been called upon by God to shoulder the gospel and to declare it wherever we can. That's a huge responsibility and a tremendous honor, one that shouldn't be taken lightly at all. You know, to use uh, to, to us, uh, to use, he, I can't even talk. You know, he's committed to us the ministry of reconciliation, taking lost humanity and bringing Jesus and reconciling. Uh, 
So, so as I close, let me give you three, three takeaways tonight. Number one, if I was going to take anything out of this, what I, what I was sharing tonight is this. Number one, we have to do our part. We have to do our part. You know, uh, I'm, I'm called to preach and teach the Word of God. The, the other specifics of that really is not important. If you look at Paul's life, circumstances change all the time. Uh, directions change all the time. Uh, he had great success. In one, I mean, think about it. One city was tremendous hit, had great success. Then, the, you know, he stayed for months and months and months, and then another city he was run out within just a short order of time. I mean, it, you know, for him, he went wherever the call was and wherever the open door was. He went. Some churches that he started had major problems. Uh, not everyone who heard him believed the message. Not all his disciples stayed true to the master, and yet he determined to go where. Pardon me, wherever he was led and become all things to all men is what he said, so that by God's grace he might win some. What am I saying? He did his part. He did his part. Was Paul successful? Well, from the perspective of 20 centuries later, we know the answer is yes. But hear me, he ended up in jail in Rome twice. And then he had his head taken off by Nero. So we, we need to do our part. Second, uh, uh, Paul said uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, let me give you this scripture, uh, verse 1, it's required of those who have been given a trust, our steward, to be found faithful. Every one of us has been given a trust, and we're to steward that, be faithful. Every opportunity, we're to be faithful with that opportunity. That's what God wants from us. Whatever the call is, be faithful and do your part. Secondly, leave the counting to Jesus. Leave the counting to him. Larry King one time was doing an interview with Billy Graham, and uh, he asked him, he said, he said, sir, how many people have been saved under your ministry? And without missing a beat, <laughs> Billy Graham says, well, I have no idea. Shocked, Larry King said, you don't have idea, no idea? And he said, no, only the Lord knows. I mean, think about that. Here's a man who's preached to millions and millions and millions of people more than any other person in history, hundreds of millions of people have seen him on television, the best-known evangelist probably in human history. And when he's asked how many people were saved in his ministry, he says, I have no idea. You know why? Because that wasn't a, he wasn't overly, he wasn't into the numbers. He's like, let God take care of that. Let God take care of that. Whatever success that we have in serving the Lord comes because the Lord has granted it to us. That's how we have to be. And the third thing is this. Don't compare. I, I, I could do a whole other series on this. <laughs> but don't compare. Listen, there's a lot of pettiness in the church today, not, not this, but the church at large. There's a lot of pettiness, right? We keep a sharp eye out for others to make sure they're not blessed more than we are, right? <laughs> we listen to their stories and not to be outdone. We tell a better story. There's so much competition in our world today. That's nothing new. I mean, think about it. when the disciples were with Jesus. You remember that? wasn't wouldn't that wasn't that problematic? They when they were with Jesus. I mean, they 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 often argued as to who would occupy the honored seats in the kingdom. In fact, two of them were so intense upon it that they actually had their mother come and campaign for them. They were competing against each other. See, comparison makes us covet someone else's success without having to make the same sacrifice that they did to get to that position. Think about it. We covet someone else's success, but have no idea of the sacrifice to get where they are. That's what comparison does. We're so focused on what we don't have that we fail to see what we do have. As I've used this before, and I'm closing with this. I love, the, I love the story in John 21, one of my all-time favorite stories to smack folks upside the head, myself included. You know, you've heard me say it before, but you want, it goes right to the root of apostolic competition, okay? So, so basically, Peter, again, evidently feeling a little bit, you know, yeah, I'm Peter, the rock. So he asked Jesus, what's going to happen to John? Apparently, there had been a rumor that John was going to live until Jesus came back. And Jesus had already told Peter that he was going to die. So John's like, I mean, uh, so Peter's like, okay, so what's going to happen to John? And here's what the answer. Here's what he said in John 21, 22. 
He said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? What is that to you? What's it to you? If I want to bless John, what's it to you? If I want to give John a new pickup truck, what's it to you? Right? And then he gave him this instruction. He said, you must follow me. You must follow me. It's a, it's a polite way of saying, you know what? What happens to John's none of your business. You just follow me. It's a comparison. That's a takeaway. Don't get caught up in a comparison. If you lead a ministry, if you're starting a ministry, don't look at somebody else's and says, well, they got more people than I do. That would kill it in a heartbeat. If we, if, if we do that, uh, listen, if we follow Jesus, listen to me. That's successful right then and there. When we stand before the Lord, he's not going to ask us how big our Sunday school class was, how, how many people were in our church. He's going to ask us, were we faithful to the talent that he gave us? Remember, he distributes one, three, and five. He knows the abilities and the wiring, wiring of every one of us. And if you have one and you look at the one that has five and say, well, you didn't give me five, so I'm not going to. I mean, that's what the parable is all about. So I'm not going to do anything with it. Nah, don't fly there. What do you call him? A wicked servant. Wicked servant. We, we can't do that. So, again, uh, success that he has in mind, the metrics that God uses, is are we faithful and seeing lives changed? Won't you stand with me tonight? So you, when, you, when you start getting into Paul, doesn't he, doesn't he put things into, into perspective? Again, I, sometimes I, I need to go back and read that in John 21. What's it to you? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I look and I'm like, Lord, why do they, why do they get that? Why do, why do you do that? And I hear that echo in my mind because I've used it so many times. I've said that to many, many people. What's it to you? A little more tactful than that, but it basically the same thing. What's it to you? And I hear that echoing in my spirit. <laughs> What's it to you? Okay, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'm sorry. Why don't you bow with me as we close in prayer tonight? You know, Paul, Paul in this section was talking about ministry, the ministry standard. But it applies to every part of our life. That, that insatiable drive to be top dog, to be number one. We have to be so careful that we don't measure success by a worldly standard because what that will do is it will run us ragged. It will, it will age us before our time. We have to sit back and rest in what God measures. You may never preach behind a pulpit. You may never pastor a church or teach a class. But that thing that he called you to, if you will be faithful, then all the rewards, you know, isn't that what the Scriptures say? You know, the prophet's reward will be given to those who support that prophet. All those things that we do add up to the kingdom assignment. And when we stand before the Lord, he's not going to say, well, because you weren't a pastor, you don't have that. Because you, didn't do, you weren't a Sunday school teacher, you don't. He's going to say, you know what, I gave you an assignment to do. Were you faithful at it? Were you faithful at it? Did you... Did you do what I asked you to do? That's the measure right there. Not how big it is, how many nickels and noses you have, who you can call on the phone. It's about are you being faithful to what he's called you to do. I'm just going to close with that tonight. Maybe if you're online tonight, I just want to, two things. Number one, if you're caught up in the comparison, that's something that struck a nerve in my heart. If, you, if, you're, if you're caught up in the comparison, you need to get that monkey off your back right now and be free of that. And understand that we're here to play to the audience of one because he's the only one that really matters. And the second thing is this. Maybe here tonight and say, you know what, Pastor, I, I, I want to live with that, with that mindset that, you know, success. I don't want to be caught up in the world's definition of success. I want to be faithful. That's it. I want to be faithful to the end until Jesus calls me home. Any one of those errors, if you're here tonight, just slip your hand right, right back down. If you're online, if you'll comment, I want to pray with you as well. Thank you. Let's just pray. Father, tonight I love you and I thank you for your word. Lord, again, it remains a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, I thank you uh, for the example of Paul. These things are there for our learning and for examples to us. I pray tonight, Lord, that we...
grab hold of what Paul was talking about. He said, look, I don't need to boast and I don't need to brag about all the things I've done. Just look at the changed lives. Lord, help us as a church, first of all, help us always focus on lives being changed. Yes, Lord, we want to grow and we want to see people come and, and, and help us and numbers in the church, but that's not the main goal, Lord. Help us to seek changed lives. And Lord, let that be the, the, the motivator for every single thing that we do. Lord, let us be that letter that Paul spoke of. Let us be that living epistle read. And Lord, when we serve, may they see a story in us of a compassionate God who cares for the needs of humanity. Father, I pray that you would, again, you would encourage us to remain faithful. I pray for those that raise their hand tonight that said, you know, I just want to be faithful. I want to remain faithful uh, until the end. I want to finish my course, my race, keep the faith just like Paul did. Lord, help us to do that, Lord, and help us not get caught up in that comparison world where we're worried about somebody having more than us or doing more than us or having a bigger this. Or, Lord, just help us to be faithful to what you've called us to do. Leave the results to you, and one day we'll see the reward that awaits us. Well, Father, I pray you'll go with us tonight. Give us a wonderful, restful evening. Should you, Terry, wake us up tomorrow ready to go out on assignment. Lord, I pray that you put people in our pathway that we can share the good news of Jesus Christ. I love and I bless each one here tonight. Look forward to seeing each one on Sunday ready to receive your word once again and see transformation. We declare it in Jesus' name, and we all said amen. Thank you for joining us online. I look forward to seeing you next time. God bless you, and I love you very much.